0: I claim wig, li- I miss wig life. Like, I'm so happy. I'm getting a wig next week. Like, I love it. Like, my natural has been the most healthiest when I've been um, wearing wigs.
1: All right, guys, let's talk about wig life. Wigs and weaves are a protective style, it's another way to switch up and be creative with your hair whilst protecting your crown underneath. As Derek told us in the first episode, Black women have been wearing wigs for centuries.
0: We've had almost 3,000 years of black dynasty. Cleopatra, for instance, was a Candace queen. Her hair was bobbed. Who did that? Africans, (laughs) black people.
1: It's a practice that goes as far back as the ancient Egyptian times. But have you ever asked yourself, where does the human hair from wigs and weaves actually come from?
0: Not really, because I know that, it, well, it's said on AliExpress that it comes on China. So, yeah. I actually
1: do not know. <laughs> I actually don't know. As long as it looks good and the supplier is, you know, does it their job, then yeah, as long as it looks good. I haven't really bothered or thought about it, unfortunately. Honestly, I don't really think about it. I think it's more of a Pandora's box trying to find, um, you know, where our hair comes from, how it's made um, and how it comes to us. Um, so I think finding out more would probably be kind of shocking. I've seen like this video on YouTube, I think, and then there were people that were shaving their heads in China and then giving it to, you know, to get money. And I do feel bad. And a woman even tells me like you have to be careful, but I don't know. Like, I don't really, I care, but
2: I don't care. I have thought about it, and I honestly believe, and it might be in my mind to make me feel better, that people just, that had really nice, luscious Malaysian hair donated it for others like myself, who need to maintain their natural black afros. I don't know if that's correct, probably incorrect, but that's what I like to believe.
1: Now, before we go any further, I have to say, this is not Hair podcast and I'm not about to tell you that you should never ever wear wigs and weaves ever again. Nah, this is not what this is about. In order to understand the supply chain and which communities own the black hair shops from a business perspective, we have to understand where the hair is sourced. Hi, my name is Leanne Alley aka your resident podcast queen And this is episode two of Coiled. Where does human hair actually come from? In this episode, I'll be speaking to Sandra Brown-Pinnock, who manufactures her own human hair extension range called Sandy's. So I was the person, and I can say this loud and clear, that
2: brought this to the UK.
1: And Professor Emma Tarlow, whose research specialises in the human hair trade.
3: The idea that something that is so intimate can end up being detached, completely decontextualized, commodified, made into something else, circle around the world for thousands of miles and then end up on the head of somebody else in a completely different cultural context. But I was just very interested in, in that as a, as a way of understanding globalization. Now I have to admit, I've never actually worn a wig or weave myself. I mean, I
1: relaxed my hair for so long, for so many years, that it's the only style that I ever tried. And then when I did eventually start experimenting with different styles at my big old age of 21, were um, my go to because that's something that I had done when I was younger. So naturally, that's just what I went to next. So I wanted to speak to one of my friends, Nana.
0: You know me as Nana, but people call me Vima now. And, and I'm based in Milton Keynes, born and raised. She is a self-proclaimed member of wig gang.
1: I mean, this is how she felt when she put on her very first wig. I felt like
0: the ish. I was like, what? Like, is this what Beyonce feels like? Oh my gosh. Like, I look, I look American. Like, this is it now. I've made it.
1: I spoke to her to find out why wigs are her hairstyle of choice and whether she ever thinks about
0: where her wigs come from. So I'd done the big chop. This time I, th- I was, like, 15, 16. I think I was, it was GCSE time. Like, I was going into, like, sixth form or whatever. And my mum had gone to New York and she had picked up like maybe, like, a wig or something, like a like a Remy hair wig. And she had got me... I don't know why she had got me one or whether I took this from her. Anyway, I was doing the big chop and then I just started wearing wigs. And But because my hair was getting healthier underneath, like, I just i just liked wigs at first it was like oh, i'm just gonna like wear this wig until my hair grows out but it was just healthy like i don't know i just really enjoyed it i like the versatility like you can just change it up whenever you need to in the winter time your head is warm (laughs) so i love wig life i absolutely love it and now the wigs are just you can just do anything with your hair to be honest with a wig
1: Where do you actually go to purchase your wigs? And do you ever actually think about where the hair comes from?
0: Yeah, so I mainly just go on things like Alibaba, if I'm completely honest. Like literally recently, I did try to purchase, I needed a quick hairstyle for the bank holiday. So I thought, let me just go on Amazon. I was like, let me just go on Amazon and get, and get a wig. If you guys saw, if you guys saw how the wig came, they said eight inches. This was, it was like one inch, right? It was it was one inch, it was terrible. Like, ah. and I was like, oh my gosh, I look like somebody's auntie going to church on a Sunday. Like it was that, it was that bad. Since then I tried it, but I just stick to um like Alibaba or Aliexpress, which are obviously Chinese um, manufacturing companies. And with regards to thinking about the donors, um, like, don't get me wrong, like, I've watched the documentaries and stuff. Like, I've watched the documentaries. I'm fully aware of where, they, where it comes from. But I think personally, for me, it's just like the food chain in life. Do you know what I mean? You know, everyone has their part to play. Like, if they didn't, if, like, I know that, you know, a lot of these places are giving their hair, like, to temples and stuff. And it's like their donations and people say, "Mm, that's not quite right because they think they're donating their hair to God and then the temple are, you know, um, selling it on. But I just think it's, it's just a cycle of life. It needs to happen. Like we need to buy the hair in order for that temple to kind of keep running as well. Like, so I don't think about it too much if I'm completely honest. Obviously you'll get like Indian hair, Vietnamese hair, Brazilian hair. But to be honest, the thing that I think about the most, more than the donor, is actually, am I, am I buying Vietnamese hair or Brazilian hair? Or is this all actually still coming from Asia? Do you know what I mean? And are they just selling it as that so that they can charge more?
1: And that's a really good point Nana makes there. Are we actually buying Brazilian hair or Peruvian hair? Or is that simply just a label? I wanted to get some further insider information, so I spoke to Sandra, who manufactures her own human hair extension range.
2: My brother, who lives in America, he lives in Manhattan. I visited him, that was in 2008, and he had a friend who, you know, we were having dinner and then he started talking about um, that he had acquired a factory that, you know, they do hair extension and everything in Cambodia and said he was looking for a partner. And I just said, oh, I'm here if you're ready. And so he said, are you serious? So I think it was six months later, my brother called me because he called me Bev and he said, Bev, are you really serious? Because he's really looking for someone. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I did, you know, put some money towards it and have um, a percentage in the factory there. At the time still, you know, they were saying uh, when the hair, I used to use a lot of hair extension and hair extension was all mixed. And so I decided that I was going to create a hair extension. I must say it sells and it's still selling really well because I make sure that, you know, if if you're selling something, especially selling something to our community, we're going to make sure that we sell quality stuff. Sandra is an
1: OG in the hair care business. She has one of the only black owned hair care stores in South London called Sandy's. And she pioneered bringing certain styles
2: over from the U.S. to the U.K. in the early 2000s. I went back to America, and at the time, the 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 lace system was just coming in, and I got one fitted, and then I said, I'm going to take it here and bring that here to um, the uk so i was the person and i can say this loud and clear that brought lace to the uk really all the way back when yes
1: so i
2: did a big advert so i had it on the buses talking about the lace system and i must say when i brought it here honestly to god it just went off um that shop i didn't you know people were queuing up i the We were just full every day. We just couldn't... The appointments... And it was very, very expensive. I must say, at the time, a lace system was costing like um, a £1,000. Really? £800. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, for one install? Yes. Are you serious? Yeah, it was very expensive. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was very expensive. And then, I must say, the Indian guys, they just took this over and they just changed the old narratives and started bringing in these silly plastic thing and saying that they were lace and so the old system changed and that is why laces you know now you can get a lace as I see you can get a lace front for 20 pounds so it which is no good but yeah so that's that's what happened when that happened then you know everything just went down because everybody is looking for something that they can afford
1: so um i write in thinking from what you've just explained it's the change in the ownership of supply and the manufacture of cheaper products yeah.
2: that had a impact an on impact on your business. on my business, yes. Right. Yeah. So it just went all the way down and then everybody started, you know, fitting the, the lace system and they were selling this, you know, <laughs> so cheap. <laughs> Yo, £1,000
1: for a lace front, that seems crazy today, but it got me thinking. If the products got cheaper, how much human hair is actually in the wigs that we're buying? I mean, is the hair combined with other matter? Is it synthetic? Is it something else? Like, I don't know. I mean, it's like when you get a fast food burger and you think about how much beef is in the burger compared to the other bits of the animal that we probably wouldn't usually eat. Anyway, it just really got me thinking when they say 100%, is it really 100%? So as someone who actually manufactures human hair extensions, I wanted to find out how much information Sandra actually knows about where the
2: hair is sourced. The factory is based in Cambodia, but most of the hair, as you know, it comes from India. And so it's from the temple where the ladies um, grow their Some of them grow their hair to, to really sell it. That what helped them to maintain their family, while some do it because of um, their spiritual belief. So they will just go and have their hair um, shaved. From your
1: understanding, do you know if when these women... I guess men and
2: women that are going to these temples and they're donating their hair. Do they know what they're donating it for? I think a lot of them don't, to be honest. And I'm going to be honest here because I, I've also asked the question. A lot of them don't. A lot of them don't know.
1: How does that make you feel as a
2: manufacturer? Which is this? Which is the reason why I asked the question? Because I'm saying, well, if they don't know, they they don't. They're just donating it, and they don't know where it's going. And I think that's kind of i see it as a kind of abuse and it's kind of wrong and sometimes i'm like it's wrong or should we be doing that or should we go for the one that they just sell there? hair so so you you you're in a quandary where you're thinking oh what do i do here do i just stop hmm. or do i continue so yeah
1: for you in an ideal world how would you prefer to source hair in like the most ethical
2: way so be honest, I think I think um, donating the hair is good, but I think that they should know where why they're donating it in the first place and where it's going on, what you know. And also, for me, I always say all that money, what do they do with, with all that money? Because it, don't go back into the community that these, right. yeah. A lot of these people that donate the hair, yes, they do help them. But a lot of the money don't go back into the community. Because if you see the community that they're from, you can, you just have to go there and see. That's, well, there's no infrastructure. There's nothing really. So I, I think that's where it, it's, it's, and that's what I talk about, abuse. And I think that's where it's wrong. Hmm. Because they should be putting something back with all. Because when you, when you go and see these temples, it's not just one or two people just walking in. I mean, they they long queue, and they sit down and they just, you know, shaving the hair off like sheep. So it seems like this method of donating hair
1: as part of a religious ceremony and also selling hair are the most common known ways of sourcing human hair. But what I'm really wondering here is by the time the hair gets to us in its packaging, how do we know for sure that what we're buying is 100% human hair? Is the labelling on the packaging always legitimate? Where is all the money even going? And who actually benefits the most through this trade? And really and truly, how ethical is the hair trade industry? It's something I've really never thought about properly, but Professor Emma Tarlo gave us the whole picture. I started off by asking her the burning question, where does human hair that we use for wigs and weaves actually come from?
3: a good question. Inevitably, it comes from individual heads, usually of women, obviously people with long hair. And most of that hair is being sourced in Asian countries. A lot of it's coming from India, but also China, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, any country where the majority of women still have very, very long hair that they very rarely cut uh, are, are the more likely places that it's coming from. There is hair also sourced in parts of Europe, particularly Russia and Ukraine, but to a much smaller extent. The vast majority of it is coming from Asian countries.
1: Okay, and can you explain to us what are some of the different ways that hair can be sourced?
3: Yeah, so the sort of most obvious way, in a sense, is, is people selling their hair directly for money. So in that in that kind of context, uh, people in need of money, they'll either go to a market or maybe there'll be people coming around and from village to village and suggesting to cut hair. And people will usually retain some hair themselves, maybe up to their chin or something like that, a bob, but they'll have the sort of very, very long part of their hair cut off and they will obtain usually really a very small amount of money uh, for that hair and you need to have at least two years growth to be able to 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 sell hair so um, but some people will sell it you know repeatedly at different stages of their life so that's sort of selling hair directly that's cut Um, another really important source is religious contexts where people renounce their hair so they're actually choosing to have their heads shaven for religious purposes so that could be within the context of buddhism but also the most sort of major sort of religious source of hair that's coming into the market these days is actually coming from India, from sort of Hindu traditions in South India, where there are a certain number of temples that people go to and they make make a vow to their gods and say that if something good happens, somebody recovers from an illness or good marriage partner has been found or the business is going really well. If all of this happens well, we will come to the temple and we will uh, shed our hair and come and worship this god. There you have whole families really going on a pilgrimage and their hair is, is shaved off in a few gestures. So you'll have some people with really, really long hair, you know, almost down to their knees. You know, some people who've never had the hair cut and it's literally shaved off um, in a few gestures. And that hair is very carefully gathered up because it's very valuable hair in the human hair trade because it's long, it hasn't been chemically treated and it's all pointing in the right direction so it's considered sort of high value hair. And then you have people sorting out that hair into different lengths and it gets sold actually by auction and the auction is actually done electronically, it's an e-auction in order to prevent hair cartels fixing prices and, (laughs) and so on. So it's actually done um, in a sort of hidden way and that hair tends to go into, particularly the longer lengths, tends to go into the very sort of high-end hair extension and wig market. Quite a lot of it goes to the US, I think, in the end.
1: When you're talking about these religious ceremonies that they go through, what does the cutting of the hair actually symbolise? Why do they cut off their hair?
3: Well, in a sense, you know, there's a lot of ideas of life, of of femininity, but also masculinity that's built into hair, if you like, and and sort of attachment to the material world. And in a lot of religious traditions, and you find this also in Christianity, actually, in, you know, monks, will often tonsure their hair, and nuns would often traditionally cut their hair whilst going into a nunnery. So this idea that you're kind of renouncing your attachment to the material world, and and to your beauty, and to this kind of vanity, and all those things, and you're giving those up, uh, you know, for a greater cause of sort of sacrifice, in a sense, self-sacrifice, Uh, towards God, that's the kind of motivation that lies behind those types of, you know, and it's really interesting that this tonsure, as it's called, this kind of religious shaving happens across all sorts of different religions. So in the religious context, I think again, people don't know that the hair is going to be used for wigs and extensions, but um, if you speak to pilgrims who've gone, you know, to offer their hair and sort of say oh do you know you know i mean i had those kind of conversations of course generally what i found was that if you told people the hair was going to be used by other people for wigs and extensions they seemed to be pleased because they said, "Oh, well, that's even better. That means our, you know our hair will be used by somebody else, and that's a kind of benefit. And of course, you have to remember that they've come for a religious purpose. So they haven't come to get money for hair because that would almost undo the sense of sacrifice that they're undergoing in in going through the act of, of having their head shaved. And in fact, you know they pay a very small amount to have the head shaved, and their interest is going then after they've had it shaved, going into the temple and worshipping and feeling that they've done something, you know, quite great and quite momentous. And and so they're much more focused on that than on what happens to the hair. I was surprised watching women with very, very long hair, you know, have it shaved off in literally in sort of two or three minutes. It's quite, you know, dramatic, you know, and the hair's sliding down, they wet it slightly and it's it's sort of sliding down the body in a sense. And people would just sort of get up, sort of be slightly amazed at the feeling of their bald head, but just walk off without even necessarily even looking at the hair, which I found quite surprising, actually. So in a sense, they're, they're, from, from what I could see, people were much more focused on the fact that they're going for this act of worship, they're undergoing this special thing, they're fulfilling a promise that they've made, and they're not really concerned about what happens to the hair. And in fact, before the market for hair extensions and wigs and so on, um, it was just getting chucked in the river. It was just treated as a waste product. So it wasn't valued as a, as a thing because it was also within Hinduism, within many cultures actually, that you know, body parts, once they're removed from the body are considered slightly defiling, slightly polluting things. You know, they're not necessarily things that you would want to maintain a relationship with once it's a waste and you you, you kind of get rid of it, so, um, that, that sort of organic waste. So yes, it's not a question of them thinking, ah, well, why didn't I get some money for it then at all? You know, and and interestingly, another thing that I found quite interesting is quite often I'd be in a hair factory or workshop and most of the women in, in India have have very, very long hair. But you'd occasionally see one or two people with with short hair and I'd sort of ask them, you know, did you sell your hair or offer it to them? No, 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 no. Somebody was ill and I went to the temple. I never, never sold it, which I thought was really interesting. It was always a religious act and quite separate. And interestingly, talking to those women who were working with hair every day, they sort of said, you know, we've never valued our hair so much because now we know... These were people who did know about the desire for hair in the in the West or whatever they, um, they were saying we've never valued our hair so much as we do now because we know that people want it kind of thing so they had a greater sense of pride in their hair in some sense because they knew that there was a market for it this is in a more sort of um, established factory than it not in this kind of little rural area that I was talking about in Myanmar where they had literally no clue as to, as to the fact that the hair industry even existed
1: listening to this I think it's hugely ironic that the religious symbolism of cutting the hair represents that they're renouncing from the material world yet what that hair is being used for is then being commodified and it's also really interesting to hear that the people who donate their hair through the religious rituals are actually very accepting of the fact that the hair is sold on as it gives value to what they're giving away instead of being seen as a waste product Donating through this religious ritual is the highest value of hair that you can get through the hair trade. We will hear more from Professor Emma after this short break. I found out from Emma what other ways hair is sourced and hmm, I am telling you guys, you're in for a shock
3: here. So the third way, which is actually a very important way, but which is also tends to be very hidden in in the industry, is the fact that throughout all these countries that I mentioned before, where women tend to have very long hair, people will collect uh, the hair that falls out uh, during brushing and combing. So this is called combings. And um, so, you know, I'm sure, you know, we all have that experience that when we wash our hair or brush our hair, a little bit of hair comes out. Apparently, we lose between 50 and 100 hairs a day. Um, so if you imagine collecting up that hair, and in fact, I've been doing it with my own ever since I started doing this project. I started collecting my own hair to sort of see what, what that would amount to. And it actually amounts to a really quite large amount. But so somebody with long hair, maybe after a year, might have a, a sort of a, a, a ball of hairballs like this, which they'd be able to sell for about, you know, the equivalent of one pound or a little bit less. So you have itinerant sort of traders who will go around door to door really asking for hair. And people will come out and say, well, I've saved this, I've saved that. And, and they so they will get a very small amount of money for that hair, but nonetheless something. And it's hair that would otherwise have been thrown away. And all of that hair gets accumulated up until there's Tons and tons of it, and it goes to untangling workshops. So they're called sorting workshops. So they're kind of like small factories, but without any, almost no mechanization whatsoever. Basically, to untangle that hair, you are sitting on the ground and with your individual fingers teasing out the hair because it's all, it balls up into really tangled little hair balls. So you'll basically have people whose job is to untangle that hair just to line it up into equal lengths uh, to take any lice out of it that that might have been in it because of course that can happen to wash it to hackle it which is you know uh, passing it over these kind of metal combs treating it very similar actually to to many of the processes you use you know treating cotton fiber so it goes through all these different processes until eventually it sort of ends up as this absolutely beautiful bunch that looks like a sort of horse's tail you know completely Straight and at the two ends, exactly the same length and all the rest of it. And when it's in that state, it then gets sent to factories for the making of wigs and extensions, which tend to be in China because that's the largest sort of centre of human hair. Now, guys, I'm going to stop this podcast right here. I'm going to, have to pause this podcast right here, Blizz. Now,
1: I'm going to ask you to pick up your hairbrush and look at the hair that's collected in it. I'm just getting mine out now. Have a look at all that hair that is accumulated in that brush. Pause on that for a second and think about how many clumps of hair it takes to make a wig. <laughs> it's crazy. I can't believe this is an actual way that you can make hair just looking at that I'm just thinking of all the other mounds of hair that are put together if, if you've ever seen a picture of it just piles piles pile of these mounds of hair it just makes me feel a bit sick it just makes me feel a bit uneasy and I don't know why it's just it's just we will really go to any lengths to make products cheaper for the masses just take a minute to think about what that means for you So there are three main ways that human hair is sourced. Women sell their hair, they can donate their hair through the religious rituals, and the gathering and processing of combings is another way that human hair is sourced for weaves and wigs. Given the varying quality of human hair that comes from combing versus hair that has been sold or donated, I wanted to find out how much money actually goes to those that sell the hair. And as Sandra mentioned earlier in the episode, is there any money that is going back into these communities that is providing the foundations for the hair trade? You know, when you were saying um, when women cut their hair for money as well, that's like two years worth of growth. How much money are they getting for that if they're getting like one pound for like a, a
3: mound of hair. <laughs> so that varies a lot. So, But, um, you know, depending on where that is and who is the hair procurer, who is, who, you know, how much are they willing to give? In the context where I saw it, where people selling their hair directly in Myanmar, people were getting about £7 really? for a kind of, you know, a length, a big length of hair. Obviously, in Myanmar, seven pounds lasts an awful lot longer than it would here. So you have to always look at those things in proportion to the income generated. So, for example, somebody who's untangling hair balls for eight hours a day would earn something like one pound twenty for eight hours' work. So that that sort of contextualizes a little bit more. You know, that that's a poor wage, obviously, but it is a wage. It really depends on the scruples of the person who is collecting the hair and whether they're sort of saying, to me, oh, you know, your hair's really bad quality. You know, we won't be able to get any money for that, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, or whether they are valuing it and giving a decent amount of money, which obviously is probably rarely the case, I should think, because it's a business mm. and people are, are obviously making money out of it. And because it's such a labour intensive business that requires so many different stages of, of production, there's a lot of people who are sort of paid along the line before before something actually becomes a finished product. And at the same time, the companies want to get some profit. So, you know, when you see very cheap hair extensions or wigs in the marketplace, and you try to trace that back and you think of how many different people that would have been involved, they must have got very, very little money for it. But the cheaper end of hair extensions and wigs are all likely to be made from these kind of combings. In some of the factories in China, they refer to combings as standard hair, right? It's the standard hair that you're using for those sort of standard products. So those untangling workshops tend to be in sort of India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and probably in many other countries as well. Um, also in Myanmar, I saw them. So actually, they tend to be located in poor areas within countries, which are anyway quite low-income countries, where you can find a workforce of people who are willing to do that kind of work you know, for very low wages. Because this is the other factor in China, is that the wage level has gone up considerably, and young people coming into the city would much rather work in an iPhone factory <laughs> than, than in a hair factory.
1: Wow, I mean, the wage for people who are working on the ground in the detangling factories and selling their hair is so, so low. Given that we pay hundreds of pounds for human hair wigs, it makes me wonder where the rest of the money is going. Is it going directly into the suppliers' pockets? Is there a reason those who are working on the ground aren't getting paid more? and which communities is this industry really benefiting? When we're buying human hair, there's no real way to know which one of these methods have been used to source the hair. I mean, apart from the price tag, of course. But does the labeling of Remy and Virgin hair help us understand what type of hair we're buying?
3: Yes, I mean, there's a lot of confusion, I have to say, in the labelling, so labelling is not necessarily always to be believed. But these days, when you hear Remy, it means it's referring to the hair that is already in the right direction, so that it's so it's usually been cut or, or shaved and kept in the right direction, and it's much, much more expensive than the non-Remy, which is actually what the combings is. It's, it's hair that's in different directions. And, uh, and of course, one of the interesting things about combings is that by the time all this different hair has been sorted out, collected up, exported to China, then undergoing a lot of processes there as well. So generally they'll put it in a chemical bath in order to take the cuticle layer off it completely, because otherwise, in order to prevent this kind of tangling that I was talking about with the cuticles. But then once you've burnt the cuticle layer off, the hair is much less resilient, it's much less strong. So it tends to be, Uh, less longer lasting if you see what I mean. So it might look like it's very nice initially but it doesn't necessarily wear very well. There's also all the different uh, techniques for curling hair which are really quite amazing when you see them I mean and very simple really I mean basically it's all about winding hair around sticks uh, or aluminium poles of different sizes and lengths. Baking the curl into the hair and then in some cases they'll then sort of dip the curls into a kind of chemical bath that enables you to get different levels of curl pattern depending on how long you leave it in the chemical. There's also a kind of mesh type structure through which you can sort of press hair and sort of bake in that yakky texture. And I should also add that, you know, in in some of the lower end factories, and they are different, you know, it's important not to just assume they're all the same because they're really not. Some have high standards and some don't. But in the ones that don't, that are catering more to let's get the absolute cheapest product we can, and they're being asked to produce that. I mean, this is not just the Chinese, this is also the the entrepreneurs coming perhaps from West Africa or or from the United States or wherever. Uh, If they want the absolute cheapest product, then they will discuss with the producers, how can you produce the cheapest you know, product that we can put in this packet that says human hair. So sometimes you will get synthetic hair slipping in, you'll get horse hair slipping horse in. hair! Uh, and yeah, so that will happen. And I, I have seen that actually with uh, horse hair and synthetic hair being mixed together and put in packets that say 100% human hair. I mean, I'm not saying that that's common practice, but I have seen it. Uh, so it definitely happens. Now guys, I am shook. So you mean to tell me
1: that Brazilian, Peruvian, these are merely used to describe a texture and look that is manufactured through chemical treatments? We're not actually getting our hair from these places, you know? It just really makes me think that as consumers, we have to understand that labeling is not always to be believed. But then again, what what can we believe? What What should we take from this? I mean, with all this in mind and all the information that Professor Emma has shared with us, ultimately, I needed to ask the question, how ethical is the human hair trade? And is this something we should be talking more about?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, there's a lot of unethical practices within the hair trade, for sure. Firstly, it relies very much on poverty um, and somehow it would be very difficult for it to exist without poverty unless people are willing to pay, you know, huge amounts for the labour and the and the final product, which can happen in some markets. In the sort of bulk market, uh, the tendency is to desire the cheapest product possible and the likelihood is that you are purchasing hair, the person who's selling the hair gets very little money. Very often people in the West will think, well, you know, the religious thing is really scandalous because they're offering their hair and they get nothing. but. Personally, because I know that those people are offering their hair for a completely different purpose and in a sense they're unconcerned with what happens to it, I don't find that's the area that I find more ethically problematic. Personally, I would say that it's more ethically problematic is when somebody is sort of duped into selling their hair for very, very little money and not given a sort of decent amount of money in in return for it. And and then another area that's complicated is the conditions in some of the factories and workshops, labor conditions which aren't great, and and particularly you know with chemical dyes and things like that that are very toxic, and uh, people are not really protected. So the conditions in the factories are, are poor on the whole. Again, I'm generalizing, but on the whole, they are. And similarly, I would say at the production level, you have different levels. For example, there's a big factory uh, in Chennai, which is very well run, which is very ethically conscious in terms of wages, in terms of workers rights, in terms of sort of pension, sick leave, um, recycling water, you know, so you can, it can be run ethically, but of course those products are much more at the more expensive end of the industry.
1: Taking a look inside the hair trade industry, I've learned not only about the processes that are undertaken to make weaves and wigs, and that in reality, it's really difficult to know exactly which type of process has been used to source the hair, but also there are a lot of poorer communities that really rely on this industry for their livelihood. Given that all the women that we spoke to for this podcast pay big, big money for human hair wigs, I'm talking upwards of 100 pounds, 200, 300, and you can definitely get wigs for more than 500 pounds. This conversation has really made me think about those who supply the hair and how they can make their practices more ethical and pay fairer wages. Who's going to put the pressure on them? I don't know, but what we can begin to understand is who actually owns the black hair industry. Where is this money going? And how important is it that we buy black owned? All of this we'll be exploring in the next episode. There's real value in having products made by someone who actually has you in mind and not just the cold, hard side of business, like profits and, and growth and things like that. Thank you for listening to Coiled. Coiled is hosted and produced by me, Leanne Alley. The assistant producer is Sylvie Carlos. The theme music and closing music was composed by Oni Iroha. If you do anything after listening to this episode, share it with the younger sibling, cousin, friend, anyone you think needs to hear this. So that we can empower the next generation to fully embrace and love their afro hair. Because all hair is good hair. Make sure you listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Coiled Podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also use the hashtag Coiled Podcast on Twitter to let us know your thoughts on the episode what have you learned what really surprised you let's keep the conversation going I'll see you next time